Hi, I'm Lauren, that's Jordan, and welcome to the His Film, Her Movie podcast. Episode three. Yay! Three. We've actually kept it A trio. A trio of listening. Well, speaking. People. <laughs> Speaking for us, listening for them. <laughs> so currently we have a cat between us that's trying to get in. She wants to be involved. She's very happy. She's right in the middle of both the microphones because we've got a new setup. We do. So I actually have my own microphone and it's nicer than Jordan's. It's newer than mine. It's, it's exactly the same microphone, but it's, it's nicer. It's matte black. It's all fancy. <laughs> so yeah, what do we do here? We're a movie podcast. Yes, we try and take different topics and put films to them and then discuss those films in um, correspondence with the topics. Yes, we do. Yeah. So what we're we doing this week? This week we are doing great child performances. Yes, some of the great ones. There's some, some bad some ones out there. There's some really bad ones. Like, you know, not to name and shame, but, you know, the first Harry Potter. The first Harry Potter is horrendous, I to be honest. I feel like I could have acted better than that. <laughs> but hey, they were, what, You'll 11, 12 know. years old. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And we'll, we'll get into sort of what makes a good child performance, to be honest, because that's quite an interesting topic. It is, yeah. And I think it's quite hard, especially when you look at what does make a good actor. Mm-hmm. And then try and put that on a child mm. who may just not even realise what they're doing is acting. That's it. And now I've just got a cat just having fur all over my laptop and it's sort of creeping me out, but I'll leave it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a dust. <laughs> At least she's not sitting on it. So what are we covering this week? This week I'm covering Pan's Labyrinth. Brilliant. And you are covering Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yes, the Ben Zeitlin movie. Yes. And as always, you can give us a follow on Twitter at HFHM Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram on... Which is HFHM underscore podcast. Yeah. And you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Yes. So send, please do. Send us some emails. Please don't sign us up for spam. <laughs> yeah, if people could do that. That would be really nice. Why didn't I think about that? Because um, you, you think nicely. <laughs> about the about general the population. But we have had some lovely messages. We have. Um, we are now also on Facebook as of a couple of days ago. Yeah. So you can look for us under HFHM Podcast. Yeah. Give us a little review. Drop us a comment. Um, you can see what we've been up to. On our Instagram, yeah. so we've recently just been to um, one of the local family-run cinemas yeah. in Cumbria, which was lovely, really nice. We've been before, but it was a bit of a treat to go again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just films, it's... General. Us. General those. Us and our life with films. Yes. And if you find us boring, then tough. <laughs> I think you find most of on Instagram boring anyway. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> so, should we get going? <clears throat> yes. Shall we start? You can start. Echo! 
¿Sois vos? ¿Sois vos? ¿Habéis regresado? No, no os asustéis, os lo ruego. Ok, so my film, like I said earlier, is Pan's Labyrinth, which is the 2006 film by Guillermo del Toro. Um, on nine, on Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 95% rating. Mm-hmm. And um, for those of you who don't know, it is a Spanish film with subtitles. But I don't want to put anybody off because the way it is set, the way it's filmed, the whole story, once you've watched like the first 10, 15 minutes, you don't even notice that the subtitles are there. It's just so beautifully shot. Do you know what I quite find funny yeah. is that I've been the one who's saying, oh, look at me, I'm Artifati, and you're the first one with a foreign language film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but mine's like a well-known foreign film. It is. Mine's it not is. an Artifati one. Well, to be honest, Guillermo del Toro, I mean, yeah, he's making blockbusters now, but it is an independent film. It wasn't made yeah, by a studio. It, it was independently funded. So he does have that in him um, where he can go back to his sort of roots of, of horror. This was the first of his of the Del Toro films that I'd ever seen. All right. Um, <clears throat> and I just thought it was amazing. Um, for those of you who don't know about Del Toro, he did do horror previously. Um, he did like the first lot of Hellboy movies. Yeah, he did the first one just before he did this one. Yes. Um, and what I really love about him is that although he uses computers, he loves to use prosthetics yeah. and... Um, makeup monsters so my favourite story about him is that in um, Hellboy 2 when they go down to the troll market they literally just got the staff on that film and their kids to just draw monsters and then they're like oh yeah we'll just make them so the whole of that is just people in suits just wandering around and I saw an interview with him and he says the only ones that he couldn't do were the really little ones Mm -hmm. Because they were just way too small for even like children to get into the costumes. So he had to make them using computers. And um, the huge elemental demon, which was yeah. several stories high. So obviously has to be done using computers. But it's it's the same in this film. He tries to do a lot of things. So you reach out and you touch them. Yeah, it makes it's, it more it's, real. It's physical. It is. It's brilliant. And it just it works really well. Um, so what's Pan's Labyrinth about? Pan's Labyrinth is about a young girl called Ophelia who moves to a region of Spain where the... What's it called? The Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Civil War. Spanish Civil War. Not the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Spanish Civil War is raging. So there's the guerrillas in the forests and the army are trying to hunt them out and kill them. And her mother marries... Captain of the army, who is quite a brute, and Ophelia. To put it just like very he's softly, a he's a brute. It's like a fifties movie, so. <laughs> but Ophelia loves fairy tales, and this all comes to fruition that she is a princess, mm. and she meets the fawn, and there's fairies and monsters, um, but all set in this backdrop of civil war. Mm. So, if you've never seen this before, really, when you watch it, you will probably have seen stills or pictures floating around 
on the internet. It's, it's a, a well-known movie. It's a well-known movie, but I still meet people when I go, oh yeah, I did this film. I will either get people going, oh my God, that's amazing. I love that film. It's such a good film. Or I meet other people who go, what? You watched a Spanish film? about fairies and like, well, yes. well to be honest general, the general public are sometimes afraid of subtitles people don't say they don't want to read yeah. when they're watching films but again some people can do that and I've went through for a fair few years where the, predominantly the films that I was watching was foreign language mm-hmm. um, just because I was trying to widen my horizons I'm and seeing cleverer well it doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> but no like, why don't you carry on well Really, when you... I've watched this film quite a few times and I think the first time that you probably watch it, it looks a certain way and I think that you always kind of take one thing from it that it's just a fairy story mm-hmm. um, and this happens. But I think the more you watch it, it kind of becomes... Ophelia goes into these fairy stories and she believes in these creatures and these monsters because she's trying to escape the actual horrific life that she's leaving her she's lost her father her her mother has married this awful man and is pregnant with his child um and then there's the civil war going on all around and she's still quite a young girl Mm. the use of the different settings as well is really good um i read somewhere that del toro always tried to frame ophelia's um, scenes with circles, like circles of light, circle oh, windows, right. to try and show that she's open and her innocence. Whereas whenever you see the captain, it's all very straight shards of light, straight and um, lots of straight lines, lots of angles. And when you actually, it, it, their house is in an old mill, and he's always in the actual mill itself. Mm. When you look at it, it looks like a big clock yeah. inside, and he's constantly trying to fix. Um, this uh, watch that his father had. But it, I think it kind of preys on a lot of different feelings. Like the captain seems to be very, very het up over his father and how the life that his father led. And he seems quite scared that he's never going to really live up to him. Yeah. So he becomes the worst that he possibly could be with the pursuit of trying to become as good or better than her father. Well, that's it. And I think he's his sort of, father, sorry. Yeah, yeah. and he sort of, I mean, obviously they're, they're on the side of Franco, the mm-hmm. dictator, and I think for me, he's sort of seen maybe Franco as a father figure and trying to then yeah. try to mirror <clears throat> those feelings towards him than his own father. Um, also as well, throughout the whole film, Ophelia comes up against some awful situations. Yeah. Really, her situation on a whole, on a whole, she's got this hope and she's got this fight, but it really feels quite a helpless situation that you're constantly rooting for her to get out of. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you're thinking she's not going to get out of this, yeah. which again is kind of mirrored by the resistance fighters against Franco. They're living up in in the in the woods in the forest they don't have medicine or food and they are just literally fighting for their lives their situation against an organized well-fed well-equipped army also seems helpless yeah so i feel like that mirrors it really well um we'll get it over and done with because i know that you'll make fun of me because of this right okay the child eater 
absolutely terrifying. Can't deal with that child eater. So yeah, so let's go into this. So <laughs> during that scene, um, where were you? I was hiding in the kitchen. <laughs> it's this, right, I've seen the film. I know what he does. I know what happens to her. Cause there's going to be no spoilers. But it's scary. It, it is. And I have to say, um, it's done by the wonderful Doug Jones. Yes. He's in full costume. He also plays um, the fawn. That man moves so creepily. But yeah. He's terrifying. And just the actual monster itself. The design. I, it, the design of it is, is terrifying. And of course, because Del Toro wants everything to be so lifelike, it's too lifelike. But that's it as well. I mean, that... That's the image that you come away from. I mean, yes. if, you, if you see artwork from people or anything like that, that's the, the image that people always see. Is the two because hands in front of the eyes with the eyes in the palms. It's such a striking image that it does stay with you. And you can see how it could mess some kids up. Oh, this, although this really isn't a kid's this film. This isn't a kid's film. But, yeah, it, it, mess, it messes me up. And mm-hmm. I'm in my 30s very early 30s but in my 30s and I can't watch it it's too scary okay and this is why we don't have a lot of horror films because I I get scared at so much and this thing just absolutely terrifies me I I hate it but it's so good it's so good because you you need that yeah you need her she's fighting against this awful child eater which again could could be a metaphor for that because there's so many children obviously who are going to have been killed in this um awful war that have just disappeared and Mm. there's just it's like a pile it's a pile of shoes yeah it is that because that sort of harkens back to like auschwitz and the concentration camps and if you go i mean i think i've never been but you're supposed to see like the pile of shoes and the glasses Mm -hmm. and things like that and that is a haunting image of just who did these belong to? Yeah. And it's just, oh, it's it's just... So what do you think about Ophelia in this then? Because we are talking about child performances. I think she's amazing throughout <clears throat> all of it. Um, she just encapsulates that character so very, very well. Yeah. She looks so worried and so scared 90% of the time. And when she does have those little bursts of happiness, you can just see it so well on her face. Mm. And it's Ivana Baquero. Uh, Baquero. She's a wonderful. She's a wonderful little actress in this, and she's so good. And it, it's yes, you have the child that stays with you, but it's her performance, just her constantly fighting, and you can just see she's like she's so strong. Yeah. Throughout all of it, even and the only way that she's staying strong is to literally just hang on to these fairy tales. She's mm. got nothing else. I mean, for me, it's her eyes. She has this ability to seem completely vulnerable yeah. in the times when she needs to, but mm-hmm. then obviously show a bit of strength. The journey that she goes on, um, obviously with the trials of getting to, to the underworld... Where, is, she's, where she's princess of, by yeah, the way. Not, not, where, not like death. No. And you've got the toad, you've got the child killer, and then the third task, which is... Well, the finale of the film, so we really mm-hmm. want to give that away. At the end, not giving away the ending, do you think it's real? See, because uh, me and my dad had this me and my dad had this argument loads. He doesn't think it's real. Mm-hmm. I I do. I think I think it's real, and I think it's real because the captain has her chalk. 
Well, that's it. And if it wasn't real, then how did she get through to that room just using the chalk? Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, is the end and sadder? Is it happy? And how ambiguous it is, I yeah. think, adds to the film. Because you can go away thinking two different things. Do I think it's real? I think the journey's real. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the end might not be. I would probably go on that line of, okay, I believe in the fantasy, and then all is good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'm pleased that you said that, because the ending makes me cry <laughs> every time. I just feel the tears coming, and she's she's a wonderful actress. She is. Throughout it, and I just think she did so well with this film. But yes. So, I have a bit of a relationship with this film, in the oh, fact really? that... I mean, I saw this in the cinema. I can tell you where I saw it. I saw it at City Screen in York when I was at university, 2006. And when I saw it, I did. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was right up my street, that sort of dark fantasy. However, it quickly became the go-to foreign language film of people. It's like, have you seen a foreign language film? Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. And me, in my sort of young hipster way, <laughs> I was like, is that the only one that you know? And yeah. then I sort of... <laughs> Thought Bec- that you were better. Yeah, in a way. It's just the fact that <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm not going to give this film the props that it deserves because it's it's like Fight Club. Yeah. Fight Club is a fantastic film. It's an amazing film. But it's I went to film school and it was every douchebag's favourite film who was like under 20 when I went there. And it was just sort of like, okay, it's good, but come on, it's not that good. I don't like the fans of Fight Club. How bad does that make me feel? I'm a fan of Fight Club and... <laughs> I'm really sorry, hun, but you're marrying me, so you must like me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with Pan's Labyrinth, you've got fantasy blended with reality, and that, for me, is Del Toro's kitty litter. Mm-hmm. He's done it before, and he'll do it again. And yeah. it works so well. The one thing I take away, yes, the creature design is superb, and just the intricacies of that fawn character and how he moves, and he feels like he's made out of trees, and you feel yes. the old, and it... The moss and the yeah, ravings and it's like it. rotten away. Yeah. Um, but also the set design, and it's a Eugenio Caballero <clears> who's <throat> a, who is the set design here, and it's so intricate. When when they go down into the labyrinth, it's where she first meets the fawn. It's luscious and it feels really lived in. Yeah. It feels like part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do like that. And again, Doug Jones. His performance in this is one of the standouts for me, even oh, though yeah, he's amazing. He doesn't really speak. Because I don't think it's his voice who's speaking in Spanish. Well, is it? No. But I have a fun fact for okay. when you finished, and I will tell you about Doug, Doug Jones and, and his speaking in this film. <laughs> and what, what I kind of like about this is that you don't really understand what film you're in and what you're dealing with until the scene with, I think it's um, a poacher and his son. Oh, God, yeah, that's awful. And it's you're in this, and it's sort of like, okay, is it, a kid is the lead character... This isn't an an adult film. Mm -hmm. And then when you get that scene and you get the captain murder the father with the blunt end of a bottle, it is violent, it's brutal, and you understand because Del Toro lingers on the violence. He he lets you see every single blow where another film will cut away because they want to get a certain rating, where Pan's Labyrinth, I think, is really proud of its, what you call it, R rating in there. States as a 15 over here. <clears throat> it's an adult fairy tale, and that's yes. the way that Del Toro um, explains it. Not only is it an adult in its depiction of violence, but in some of its themes. I mean, yeah, it's all about innocence versus the 
harsh reality mm-hmm. of war and corrupting and how somebody can shine a light because obviously the way Ophelia is gets into the the maid's mind of thinking and thinking how brave she is for doing what she's doing and well, things Mercedes, like that. Mercedes, I put down, Mercedes is the, na- the maid and she is... God, she takes on the captain herself. No other person in the film does that. Yeah, and that's a great scene and as well with a knife. So good. But she takes. she's the only person to take him on herself. She's mm. the only one brave and strong enough to do it. Yet throughout the film, she's seen as just being subservient. But yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, Del Toro doesn't like to shy away from things. No, he doesn't. Which is why I think... It makes this film, and that's it. He does. T- he tells a story about how, um, he showed it when he when he first got a final cut of it. He showed it to a prominent producer director in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and the guy was like, "This is great, but if you cut the violence, it would actually be. He thinks it would be quite popular and it would do well." But Del Toro was like, "Well, that's not the story. It's not." And I think if you cut the violence and you take away from it, and I also think you take away from Ophelia's journey. Yeah, throughout you've got to understand that. This child is living with this violence. She's seeing it on a day-to-day business. She's hearing it on a day-to-day. Yeah, on a basis. Yeah, and it's like it that makes. And even if it is, if it's not real, if it is real again, it is ambiguous. But you understand why she would go into this fantasy world, where she's, it's getting get away from the horror. She's desperate to escape it, and mm-hmm. this is her way of escaping it. Yeah. Not my fun facts. Okay, let's have your fun facts. Okay, so back to Doug Jones. Doug Jones, um, amazing actor, as everybody knows, is very, very committed to acting. Right. He actually learnt Spanish okay. for his role for this. But Del Toro didn't think that it was good enough, so he was dubbed over by a Spanish theatre actor. There you go. But Thanks, but no thanks. Thanks. Um, Del Toro said that he could maybe do it phonetically, mm-hmm. but um, Doug apparently had said... No, I want to understand what I'm saying to be able to get the emotion behind it and the emphasis on the correct things. Learn Spanish. Didn't quite make the cut. <laughs> you make fun of me for um, getting scared at the, at the child eater? Yeah. It even made Stephen King squirm. What? Well, the thing is... Well, if it makes him squirm, it's scary. <laughs> okay? But it's for me with the child catcher, child killer, sorry... In that sequence is some of the best filmmaking. I mean, oh, it's, it's, where, where how he uses his camera and the, the score and just how he amps up that suspense and that tension. So you can see it, like, behind her, but it's completely out of focus. Yeah. It's just like this pink object just starting to move and it's like, get out, get out now, mm. run, run as fast as you can, <laughs> just because I'm going to have a full-blown panic attack and I can't deal with this. Um. And my final fun fact yeah. is, even though it's set in the Spanish Civil War, you may notice that there's not a huge amount of explosions mm-hmm. throughout it and not a huge amount of, like... There is, like, a big fire at the end and everything, but that was done on a controlled set because the region, Segovia, in Spain, where they were actually filming, was um, in one of the harshest droughts oh, it yeah. ever, ever had. So they had very little fire, very little sparks, because... They were um, really, really concerned about starting a real forest fire. So that's why there's very little... um, Even when the guns fire in the forest, Mm. there is no spark like what you'd normally see in a a film. It's just a a gunshot and a bit of smoke. 
That's because they were scared of setting the whole place ablaze. <laughs> so there we go. Anything else? Mm, no, they were my three most interesting facts. Everything else was kind of very not as interesting. <laughs> so, should we move on to mine? Yes, the beasts of the southern wild. All the time, everywhere, everything's hearts are beating and squirting and talking to each other the ways I can't understand. Most of the time, they probably be saying, I'm hungry. I got to poop. But sometimes they be talking in codes. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, 2012 Ben Zylop movie. Mm-hmm. It's about a six-year-old called Hush Puppy who lives in this sort of fictional locale of the bathtub, which is down in the bayou of New Orleans. So there's Hush Puppy and then there's her father, Wink, mm-hmm. who um, they have a bit of a tumultuous relationship. Let's just say he's never going to win Dad of the Year. He's never going to win Dad of the Year. But we can get into that, actually, because that's an interesting sort of idea. Um, and Wink is having some health issues, but what is mostly happening in this film is that there's talk about this sort of apocalyptic storm that's mm-hmm. going to be coming. And given that they sort of live under the sort of sea level, that all this land is going to be gone. Yeah. And they'll have nowhere to live and what to do with their lives afterwards. This is one of my favourite films of like sort of the last 10 years. It has such a special place in my heart because it is done in such a way that is magical... It's tragic, um, it's joyous, yeah. but it's depressing. Very depressing. Yeah, and f- it is. It's you've got this brilliant relationship between um, Hush Puppy and Wink that is organic in a way, but it's very raw, and you can see what he's doing, even though he may not be trying to get his message across in the best way. But it's sort of tough love, which okay, this, this tough love. Yeah. And there's a letting a six-year-old live in their own house that she then sets fire to. True. There's there's different variations of tough love. There's, you know, don't worry, it's not going to hurt if you fall over, just get back up again and you'll be fine. And there is ego love. You just go make your own tea because I'm going to go get drunk. (laughs) Yes. At six years old. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So we can get into that in a little bit more in a bit of time because I think it's interesting of how he does goes about it and why mm-hmm. he goes about it in that way. We've got Covanzi uh, Wallace as Hush Puppy who got an Oscar nomination for her performance. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that. she is incredible. And that's one of my interesting questions, I think, is that do you think this is a performance or do you think it's just a child being a child and that being fitting for the film itself? No, I think it's definitely a performance. I feel like... I don't know how you would school a child that young on how to act, mm-hmm. but it has to me it has to be a performance simply because for her to naturally react to things in certain ways, she would have had a really messed up childhood. That's true. So I don't know how they sort of do it because you never really see her falter. She knows what's happening she, she just seems so present in yeah, everything and that's so impressive for a child getting a child to cry in a film and what calling out for their mum or anybody hmm. i was like so impressed when she was doing that simply because if i was six and i was crying i'd be like uh, i want my <laughs> mum i want my dad 
this not this strange man in front of me. What do I like about this film even more? I mean, I love the style of it. It's a very handheld camera. Um, mm-hmm. It's naturalistic. And all the performances are quite raw. And it's just sort of what this film is about, because it's not only about that relationship, it's, it is very much an environmentalist film. Yes, definitely. Because it's obviously talking about the polar ice caps melting and mm-hmm. what's going to be happening to this world. But it's also, I think, about the other side of America that people really don't want to think about. And yeah. of sort of abject poverty and how people... I mean, don't get me wrong, I think there's a bit of stubbornness on the side of the people who live there because they I love their freedom yeah. um, and they love the fact that they're <clears throat> sort of going against the grain, but the fact that they aren't on any sort of lists. They live the lives that they want to live on the terms that they want to live them. Mm-hmm. And even the setting, I just love that New Orleans southern accent. <clears throat> it's poetic and it's rhythmic and just the way it sort of goes off the tongue it always sounds a bit like music and yeah I mean when the the woman is given the talk about the aurochs and these beasts because obviously it it just feels so otherworldly and this is of course it's post Katrina as well yeah so you've got that which is what I got from it like taking from Katrina because certain things that they said about how um, the government doesn't come here the government doesn't come here and help us. Mm-hmm. You could see it was very much in commentary to what happened after Katrina. Yeah, and you just see these lives shattered and you see these houses that are just sort of shells of of what they once were. Yeah. And for me, the way, again, talking about the direction, the way Ben Zeitlin shoots this, is the fact that it never feels like the camera goes above push puppy's point of view you always seem to be on her level yeah um so you're looking up at the humans and you stay down and it feels like you're in the dirt with her and it's sort of very much like what spielberg did with et because et is always shot at the perspective of the children mm-hmm. so therefore sometimes the humans are there and they aren't even sort of even fully in shot because you're always down with them and you feel sort of small and diminutive. Um, and, yeah, so you've got Wink, who the actor actually wasn't an actor, and that's most of the people in here were non-actors. Yeah. He was actually a baker in next to the place where they were actually doing the casting, and I like the look of him. Well, he looks really good, but I wouldn't want to buy a loaf of bread off him. <laughs> <laughs> he just looks like the kind... I know he's obviously how they've done him up and everything but he just looks like he is part of that lifestyle mm. so perfectly part of that lifestyle that you just couldn't imagine him actually having a proper job and that's it and like sort of the way he is I mean obviously the whole film is him trying to teach Hush Puppy the way of life it's trying to teach him and make sure that when he dies because he's got this heart condition and he knows he's going to be dying soon and it's just the heartbreaking way he has to communicate to her and say, okay, this is, without telling him that he's going to die, he's, he's trying to make her grow up in a way that he'll sort of die in the idea of she'll survive. And that is so, so sad. You're looking at me very strangely. I understand where you're coming from on this, but to me all I got was that her dad was incredibly selfish. He knows that he is going to die. Um, He has this lovely little girl who is so tenacious and so full of energy and 
mischief and questions, but she's not allowed to be a child. She can't act on any of that. If you knew you were going to die and you were worried if your child was going to survive because of where you live, mm. you would then take your child somewhere safe. He he knows where they are isn't safe because he's sa- he's telling t- telling her you can eat this and you can do this and you can do that but you can't do this if you do this this is bad and this is this he wants to live like that and he has made those choices so therefore he's robbing his child of any sort of childhood so that way he can live off off the beaten track so that way he can live in the bathtub as they've called it, mm-hmm. where when he dies, he can go, oh yeah, but I've taught her and, you know, she'll be fine and she'll survive. But at the same time, she's, the, the adults around her are all raging alcoholics. Yeah. The kids are literally left to fend for themselves. She's living in like a Mad Max-esque society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would you not want better for your child? The thing is, I, I, in a way, I think they see their lives as perfect, in a way. But she's a child. No, she doesn't know that. any difference. And when he's going, don't cry, you don't cry. He's teaching her that her emotions are bad. And that's why I, I, I looked at him and I was like, she's amazing and she's so strong. And as an actress, she played the, the character amazingly. And I get the whole wanting to live off the grid and everything but you do it with a better support network. You do it in a house that isn't stacked up about eight foot high on a bunch of bricks that could fall off at any moment and then let your child play with a with a flamethrower. Yeah. Okay, she's six years old and she's lighting the, the gas hob with a pig in flamethrower. <laughs> All right, that is not good parenting. I agree with that, to be honest. I do agree with that. Although, so if my to be honest, are listening, I would like a flamethrower because I think it would be hilarious. <laughs> we put a gas cooker. Yeah, but this I could go. I could go camping because I do that all yeah. the time. If we, you wouldn't go camping even if you had a flamethrower. <laughs> um, I would if there was electricity and running water and a hairdryer and walls, <laughs> which walls. isn't camping. That's just a hotel home. I'd like, I'd like to go to a hotel, please. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and the thing is, for me, Ben Zeitlin, who still hasn't directed his second film, this is his one and only film, mm-hmm. and that makes me sad because there is this sort of new crop of really good American filmmakers. There's Damien Chazelle, who obviously did Whiplash, did La La Land, First yeah. Man. There's Barry Jenkins, who did Moonlight, and If Bill Street Could Talk. And... I look forward to what they do next and the fact that they've, they've managed to do a few films is really good but I just want to see more from this guy because I think more people should be excited about him but because it's been so long since the last film seven years I think he's been forgotten in that crop of young filmmakers but that doesn't mean that he can't come back no, he may too- come back as with, with something there's no point in him making a film that just isn't no, and some pers- anywhere near as good as his first. He sort of has this sort of Terence Malick-esque um, disappearance because, I mean, Terence Malick, I mean, I don't know if he's the director of film maker that you know, but between sort of a film that he made in the 70s, mm-hmm. the next film was like 26 years later or 25 years later with The Thin Red Line. It's like, 
near enough all of his films are great. I mean, he's releasing like a film every two years now, but he used to always do long distances be- between, sorry, long times between making films because he wanted to get the best product that he could do. And I think that's a good thing. He's not just churning out crap. Yeah. Yeah, and there's one scene that, I mean, I think is, he used to always be the one that did the awards round and it's the beast scene. Yeah. It is so watchable and I think that is if you look at the performances of everybody and just how well that scene works and you can just see how committed they all are and the look on Hush Puppy's face and when she's doing the sort of the grinning and the doing the muscles it's it's adorable and it's tragic it's so cute she's yeah. so good yeah yeah what, what do you think about it I I did I really liked it so well done it's a good <laughs> film I enjoyed it um, I really liked um, the whole when you were saying about the beasts and the beasts coming to get her. It's like her fears are just getting closer and closer and closer, and until she faces them, they're just going to completely overwhelm her. Which is when she is able to face them and, and stand up, yeah, and just stand up against them and be like, "Yep, yeah, I'm I'm scared of you, but you're not going to take over my life. You're not going to control it." Um, I just I just found it really heartbreaking and I found it heartbreaking for the reasons I've said I found the dad really selfish um, I, I thought it was so cute when she's talking about all the animals and then when when stuff does flood and she's like oh the animals of no mummies and daddies are all dead and mm. it's like oh god that's awful um, you can tell that she's actually I find it quite strange because the persona that she has in the film like when she's talking to people and when she's with others, she's very strong and she's like, I am I am strong and I am amazing and I can do this and nothing bothers me. But then the voice over of her, like her in her head, yeah. is it's just a little girl. She's saying, Oh, you know, and this about when I go and I I, I, I still have this of my mummies and she's in inside she's still such a little child. Yeah. But she can't show it on the outside. And that's what made me annoyed. Because it was like, she's being robbed of any childhood. Any childhood at all. So, when when they go to the relief shelter and they like clean her up and everything. And yeah, I get it. It's not her style. But she can't even appreciate the fact that she's warm and she's safe and she's clean and she has food. She can't appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's all a case of... I need to get out because my daddy's taught me that these these guys are bad. Mm. When actually, those guys are desperately trying to keep your dad alive. And when he's saying, oh yeah, my blood's eating itself and it's this and I'm going to die. Maybe if you stayed in hospital, because you've already escaped once from hospital before. Maybe if you'd stayed there. And again, I understand, yeah, but I think what it does as well is look at the fact that if he stayed there, he won't have any health insurance. It'll just the man will get him in the end. I understand that, but would you not? Would you not want to be there for your child? Oh yeah, to be honest, yeah, of course I would. And that—that's what I don't like about it. It was she's giving up so much, so that way her dad can then live this ideal life that he's created for himself, and she just happens to be there. And it's his ideal life because he can fish, he can eat what he wants, he's absolutely blotto most of the time, 
He's got his own little house away from his child. And that's what I found most tragic about it. The fact that she's this little girl who can't... That, that's her life. She's got... She's been taught that everything else is bad. She... If this was like a real person, it's like she will never get any better. But in the situation that she's in, she's never going to get that. She's going to live well below the poverty line. She's going to probably get cirrhosis of the liver because at one point he's given her just booze at six and telling her to just down it. Yeah, I think that's supposed to have a little bit of a touching scene to it as well, saying, okay, we're, we're, we're equals now. I, I get that he's going, yeah, we're equals, no. but he's not. He should be looking after his child. I understand. And that's the bit that just really got to me. I thought that she was an amazing actress. I loved the film. I thought it was really, really good. But for me, the underlying theme is this child's absolute loss of childhood and the fact that her, her loss of innocence mm-hmm. in it. Well put. Tell it got me riled up. <laughs> but I mean, a bit of my final um, thoughts, not really on the film, but the score for this movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. So um, and really it has impressive. that sort of, again, adds to that joyous nature. And I mean, when you get to that final scene, it, the, the, the theme kicks in. Mm-hmm. It is sort of like a punch to the air moment. It, you feel sort of like really riled up by it. Well, it's really good when she like faces everything and mm. she's conquered it and that's wonderful but then she has to go back living in utter squalor she does I just want to give her a bath or a nice hot meal and like look after her you're like Angelina Jolie yeah but just with a lot less money <laughs> a lot less money a lot less money <laughs> and abs because that ain't going to happen. <laughs> so. so, yeah, well, I think that's it for another episode. Yeah, I think so. So, two good films again. Two good films, which is good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to think. I think, we're gonna, I think we decided we're going to do a nice easy one next time. Yeah, we're going to see some nice, maybe a bit more cheery. Yeah, let's go for a happy film. Let's do that. Because we've had a little bit of murder for the past couple of ones. <laughs> So we're going to go for a nice, easy film. Then I think, I mean, Some be... things I think everybody will probably know. <laughs> so yeah, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please do. Rate and review us five stars, please. You can email us on HFHMPodcast. Follow us on Twitter, HFHMPodcast. And you can follow us on Instagram at HFHM underscore podcast. Yep. Um, you can also get us on our Facebook page, which is HFHM Podcast. Um, you can leave us a review there. You can leave us any comments. Let us know what you think. If you want us to maybe review certain films, we can see if we can slot them into different topics. Yeah. If you've got any ideas for topics, let us know. Because I think at last count we had nearly 70. We do. But we want to keep this going for a little while. Yeah. So, you know, any topic would be great if it's anything to do with horror we may have to get some guest people in for me as I sit here going that sounds awful but we um, we can get that sorted yes we can and that is 
Well, that's it. That's another it. Another one. We've got another one down the bag. Yay. So goodbye. Bye.